0: A reminder, in your bulletins this morning, as we're entering this new fall season, our small group ministries are, many of them, resuming after a break over the summer. And several of them are listed on this pink insert. So if you're part of a small group and you didn't know when your small group was meeting, (laughs) this is one way to find out. Um, But more for those of you who may not yet be part of one of these communities, um, these are really a great way to continue getting to know one another at JCC building deeper relationships, uh, and really pursuing our discipleship together with one another. So I welcome you to our group. We meet on Wednesday evenings at our house. There are a number of other groups that would love uh, to have you join them. So please check those details out. Today we're continuing in our study of the book of Ephesians. If you want to turn to chapter 1, I'm going to be jumping into verse 11 here in just a minute. But the the theme, kind of the, the key word in the passage we're studying this morning is this idea of inheritance. And I'd recommend to you, if you want to find some rather remarkable, amazing reading this week, try going to Google or whatever search engine you use and type in the phrase inheritance stories. It's incredible what you'll find. There are you know, probably hundreds or thousands of stories, some of them tragic about you know families sort of tearing themselves apart over inheritance, some of them beautiful and compelling. But one of the most interesting stories I found this week happened in the nation of Portugal about 10 years ago or so. And at that time, there was kind of this mystery around an inheritance that a number of different people in the city of Lisbon, the capital city. Uh, ...were notified that they had been included in this mysterious inheritance. It turns out these these individuals were called or sent letters... ...and they were told that they had inherited a sum of several thousand dollars apiece. But the the man from whom they were receiving the funds... ...was someone that was a total stranger to them. Someone they had never met. And so initially... ...these several dozen people were skeptical about this offer of an inheritance. They thought it must be some kind of scam, something they were being lured into. But as it it turns out, they had in fact all truly been listed as the beneficiaries of a sizable estate... ...belonging to an aristocrat named Luis Carlos. And apparently about a decade before this... ...in the late 1990s, Carlos was a young man in his early 30s... ...and he had a considerable amount of money... ...and he must have had some premonition of his own mortality. And so he decided to draw up a will. But he, he had not married, he had no children... ...he had no significant family members that were close to him. And so when he met together with his lawyer... ...to draw up his last will and testament... Came time to name the beneficiaries, and he simply opened a phone book of the city of Lisbon and he identified 70 names in the phone book and he added them as beneficiaries. And nothing was said, no one was notified. This just remained a mystery. It remained a secret among him and his lawyer until 12 years later he passed unexpectedly in his mid 40s. And then his wealth, his great inheritance, was. ...distributed to this group of 70 men and women. People from every different sort of walk of life and, and social category... ...were now brought together into this mysterious inheritance. Well, in the, the opening verses to our letter... Uh, in the, our, ...Paul's letter to the Ephesians... ...last week we, we heard the Apostle Paul speak... ...of an even richer, an even grander, an even greater mystery that has come into light. And it's a mystery connected not to the the death only of, of a man like Luis Carlos... ...but here we're told it's connected to the death and the resurrected life... ...of a man named Jesus Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth. And Paul describes the mystery in this way... This is again from our passage last week, Ephesians 1, 8 through 10. He says, with all wisdom and understanding... ...God has now made known to us the mystery of His will... ...according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ. Which is to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. There's this mystery that's being made known... ...that's being revealed and proclaimed... ...in and through the person of Jesus Christ... ...in and through his gospel. And over the next many weeks... ...as we continue through this letter to the Ephesians... ...we're going to be looking and, and probing more deeply... ...into that mystery... ...to understand what, what it involves... ...what it entails for us... ...to be added to it... ...to begin to see it with new eyes... And Paul will tell us that that as we see this mystery made known in Jesus Christ... ...it it reveals to us a new kind of reality. A reality by by which a diverse group of, of men and women and people of diverse backgrounds... ...are now being brought together and formed into a new people. They're being brought together under the lordship of Jesus Christ... And as we said last week, we, we together form this new family. And our identities are getting relocated. We're relearning what it means to be in him. As we'll see in today's passage, beginning in verse 11, to that great mystery, to that great identity of the family of God, God the Father has also chosen to attach an inheritance to that family. So this morning we're going to, to look ...more carefully at what kind of inheritance has been written into the will... ...into the purposes, into the plan of God the Father... ...and being implemented through His Son, Jesus Christ. So look with me at verse 11... ...as we pray this morning, we open God's Word together. Lord, we thank You that there is this great mystery... ...there is this great inheritance... ...that you have purposed and designed and planned... ...not at random, but with careful selection. And that you are making it known now... ...making it known through your word... and ...through the power of your spirit... ...and through the power of, of the way we live... ...into this mysterious reality together... ...as the people you're choosing. Pray as we open your word this morning... ...may the words of my mouth... I teach, may the meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, you are our rock, you are our redeemer, and it's in your name we pray, amen. As we start into this passage, beginning in verse 11, I want to just highlight kind of where we're at in the flow of this chapter in fact, as we start into verse 11, we're jumping into the middle of a very long sentence. Last week, all of those verses I preached last week weren't even one full sentence in Paul's mind. In fact, in, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 are one long run-on sentence. Okay? They're phrase after phrase, clause after clause that have been connected together. And in English, we've put some periods there just to make us feel more comfortable... Okay? But one, uh, one commentator has famously called this sentence the most monstrous sentence I have ever read in the Greek language. And it's, it's this incredible sort of stringing together of thoughts and ideas. But this long sentence from verse 3 to verse 14 is, is extensive, I think, because Paul, in his mind, it's, it's this outburst of praise and worship. It's, it's coming from his heart. ...he can't help himself, he can't contain himself... ...because back in verse 3 he he begins and he says... ...Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ... ...who has blessed us. And, And he continues to enumerate all of these great blessings... ...all of these things God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And so he's listing these things off. He says we've been brought into a heavenly reality... ...we've been adopted as sons, we've been redeemed... ...we're being let into this great and incredible mystery... And now, as we pick up verse 11, he's saying... ...and we also have been given an inheritance in Christ. Let's see what Paul has to say about that. Verses 11 and 12. He says, in Christ we also, we too have been claimed... ...as God's possession or inheritance. Since we were predestined according to the one purpose of him... ...who accomplishes all things... ...according to the counsel of His will... ...so that we who were the first to set our hope on Christ... ...would be to the praise of His glory. I'm using the the NET translation here... ...but the NIV is, is very close. What Paul wants to tell us right out of the gate... ...strangely, is about an inheritance... But it's not an inheritance, first and foremost, that is belonging to us. Paul actually begins he, he begins by explaining to us that in Christ, God has chosen something to be his inheritance, something for His own. Now, at first, that, that might strike us as strange, right? Why? Would God need an inheritance? What does it mean for God to have an inheritance? Why would He he desire any particular possession or treasure or thing? The psalmist says uh, the the earth and all that is in it belong to the Lord. What does it mean for Him to have an inheritance? But throughout... ...the scriptures throughout, I think, the entire testimony of God's word... ...and particularly throughout the story of Israel. God says even though he possesses all things... ...even though he has created all things... ...God insists that he desires to have one thing that is particularly his own. He says that out of all that he's created... ...he desires to have a people for himself. So we see... ...throughout the, the story of Israel... ...how God works this out. We read in the call to worship this morning... ...the words of Moses in Deuteronomy. And Moses tells the Israelites... ...as they, they, they are standing kind of on the, the, the cusp... ...of receiving their inheritance. Right, They're inheriting the, the land that God has... ...divided up and given to them. He says, on this day when you're going to receive... ...your inheritance... ...I want you to remember... That God has, has chosen you. He says when, when the, the nations of the earth were divided up and God set the boundary markers in their place that this land will belong to this people and this land to this people. He gave special regard. He gave special deference to Israel. Why? He says that he did so because they were his portion. Because he had chosen them to be his So as as he designates the inheritances of the nations... ...God says, I choose this people to be my inheritance. Paul's picking up on that language here in verse 11. And he says to us now that in Christ Jesus... ...God is choosing a people to be his very own possession. To be his inheritance. So if we step back and ask ourselves, what is God like? What is he about? What does he care for? This passage very clearly tells us that God wants a people of his very own. It's what he desires more than any other thing. And I think because it's God's great desire, he doesn't leave it to chance... It's, It's his first priority. And so we're told that he has now employed Jesus Christ. He has sent his own son in order to make it so. God has taken the initiative to make a people for himself. He has acted first. And that's why Paul first speaks about God's inheritance, God's choosing. And I think this is why Paul says in the second half of verse 11... ...that we were predestined according to the one purpose of Him... ...who accomplishes all things according to the counsel of His will. Now that's kind of a, a loaded sentence. There's a lot of phrases there. But Paul is saying the one purpose, the preeminent purpose of God... ...is to make a people for Himself. And so when we look at Jesus Christ we can see God's heart on display. What has Christ come to do... But to choose and to make and to call a people to himself. And so in in the verse just before this, we see that in Christ Jesus, God is arranging all things. God's reordering all things. God's working out, Paul says, every ounce of his power. Working in everything. To redeem and to make a people who might be his own. That's... That's the gospel message that God initiates, that God desires this, that God desires us to be his people. And so when we step back and we survey every piece and part of our life, like like a puzzle maybe, do we see God arranging and God orchestrating and God going to great lengths to draw us to himself, to bring us into him? When we step back and we survey the world and all of creation... ...do we see that every part and piece of that puzzle is, is ordered... And, ...and is being arranged and is being worked together, Paul says... ...to draw us into the possession, into the lordship... ...into the great blessing of being his people. God is working to make us his possession. And Paul goes on to say here in verse 12... ...that we see this played out in the story of Israel first. He says that that by choosing Abraham... ...and then choosing the the people of of Israel through Moses... ...that God initiates that plan. To call a people to himself. And then we see God bringing that plan into greater fulfillment... when, ...when he sends Jesus in the flesh to Israel. And when Jesus turns up in Galilee, what does he do calls a people for himself, right? He calls twelve disciples. He says, come, follow me. Be my people. Be my emissaries. Be my agents. Set your hope in me. Christ calls Israel around himself so that they might begin to live to the praise of his glory. They might begin to reflect his glory to the nations. And so that this ...desire of God to choose and to have a people for himself... ...might grow, it might extend, it might expand to the nations. Look at verses 13 and 14. Paul explains how this happens. He says, and when you heard the word of truth... ...the gospel of your salvation... ...when you believed in Christ... ...you were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit... ...who is the down payment of our inheritance. Notice in verse 13 the change in pronouns. Paul moves from the first person pronouns... ...of us and of we in the previous verse... ...and here he moves to the second person, to you. When you heard. When you believed. And that's our clue that Paul is now speaking to his Gentile brothers and sisters. To to the newly added people in God's family. And Paul is saying to them, when you heard the word of truth, when you believed the gospel of Jesus Christ you became joined to this great inheritance of God's. You also came into this gospel. So that Now God doesn't just have the people of Israel, a particular nation state or or bordered or boundaried people. But God is now choosing people everywhere and incorporating them into and working them into his inheritance. Jews and Gentiles, men and women, slave people and free people, people in Jerusalem but also people in Ephesus. They're being brought together, Paul says, into Christ Christ. ...Christ is is the one who is causing this to happen. Paul goes on to say that... ...that in order that we might know this is what God has desired... ...that we might know his intention... ...that we might trust who belongs to this people... ...God has chosen to send or to affix a seal. This is what Pastor Glenn was speaking about. Now we don't use seals very much anymore... In China, they, they still use seals and stamps as official legal binding sort of document uh, markers. But in Paul's day, a, a seal could be employed in a whole range of different circumstances. If you wanted to, dis- to demonstrate the ownership of a particular item or, or a, a land, piece of land or property, you could affix a clay seal to that thing. If you wanted to certify the authenticity of a contract... ...you could affix a wax seal. And in religious contexts, we're told that... that ...priests or worshippers sometimes wore a stone seal... ...that was inscribed with a a message or or an image... ...in order to invoke the protection of a god on themselves. So this this is a known sort of thing in the ancient world... But here Paul says that God chooses to seal his people not with wax... ...not with stone markers... ...but instead God chooses to seal his people with spirit. Verse 13. When you believed in Christ... ...you were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. And if we go back into the book of Acts... ...and we see Paul's ministry in Ephesus... ...this is exactly what took place... Paul turns up in Ephesus. He meets about a dozen disciples. And they'd only been baptized in the name of... Well, in the the baptism of John. John the Baptist. And so when Paul meets them, he proclaims the gospel to them. He then baptizes them in the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And what happens but the Spirit comes upon them. The Holy Spirit falls upon this group of people in Ephesus. And a church is born in that moment. In that moment... God is claiming a people. God is sealing the people. God is authenticating this people. God is protecting this people as his very own. And it's a group of Jews and Gentiles gathered together, sealed together by the work of his spirit. So Paul says that God is, is broadening... ...the inheritance of of his own people. He's adding the Gentiles in. He's sealing them with his spirit as proof. And then in verse 14 he goes on to add another metaphor. Paul says that as he seals us with the spirit... ...it's like a down payment on our inheritance. And here again Paul shifts his attention... ...now not to the inheritance God has chosen for himself but for the inheritance God is choosing to give us as his people. Verses 11 and 12 were about God's inheritance. Verses 13 and 14 are about our inheritance. Paul is saying... ...that now regardless of our reputation... ...regardless of our age... ...regardless of whether we're circumcised or not... ...regardless of of what we look like or who we are... ...if we have come to the person of Jesus Christ... ...if we have received his, his spirit... ...then we are given an inheritance. What kind of inheritance have we been given? Has God assigned us stock options has God assigned us some share in a vast estate somewhere No Paul says in Christ God has assigned us an inheritance of his spirit He has assigned us himself as an inheritance to be his people to be the people he is redeeming and calling and filling and choosing And so there's this beautiful symmetry, I think, in this passage... ...about about how Paul speaks of inheritance. What does he say first? He says, first, out of all creation, out of everything God made... ...God chooses us to be his inheritance. He wants us. And then he turns around and he offers to give himself to be ours us to choose him, for us to possess him as our inheritance. We will be his beloved and he will be ours. And Paul says this is the mystery. This is what God has been scheming and orchestrating and planning from eternity past to do this very thing. And now it's happening because of what Jesus Christ has done. God the Father desired it. And he sent God the Son into creation to make it so. And then he pours out his Spirit to seal it and to work it out into the nations. Father, Son, and Spirit cooperating together here. In order to secure an inheritance for God and to secure an inheritance for us. Paul says that all of this works together to bring a great glory into being. Look at verses fourteen. Look at verse fourteen in conclusion. Paul says, You were marked with this spirit, the Spirit of God, who is the down payment of our inheritance, until the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. I think verse fourteen is our application section. This morning. It's where where we begin to ask. Well God has chosen us as his inheritance. God has given us himself. As our inheritance. What do we do with that inheritance? So what? How are we then to live? I think the only thing you can do with an inheritance. Is to receive it. To to let it change your attitude. To to respond with gladness. And as Paul will say here. to, To let it. ...cause us to live now gloriously to the praise of our God. Paul says that today we experience that spirit... ...that filling of God like a down payment. Like a pledge. But but those things always indicate that something greater is yet to come. Right? You, You put a down payment on something that you expect to receive in full... And so the spirit of God is sent to us to promise that God is with us now but it's also sent to help us anticipate the fullness of what God desires. The fullness of of what's still on the way. This idea of, of an initial offering kind of first fruits may be familiar to some of us if you've ever donated to a Kickstarter campaign. Anybody ever put money into one of these on Online. The whole idea behind Kickstarter or these other sites is that someone has this vision, has this creative idea of something beautiful they want to bring into existence, but they need help, right? And so they, they ask for you to, to give, you know, a portion, $5 or $10 or $20. But usually when you do that, the way they encourage your giving is that they send you something. If it's a, an album that's going to, produce, they, they, to be produced, they send you a, a song or two to sort of whet your appetite. If it's, ...if it's a larger, bigger project of some material thing to be created... ...they send you a kind of a, an early vision of what that might be. And so they send you something that, that's meant to help you anticipate... ...what's in the making, what's still on the way. Paul says here that by marking us with God's spirit... ...he's assuring us that there's more to come... ...there's more redemption, there's more sanctification... ...there's more life to be had in Christ Jesus on our way to becoming God's full possession, he says. And so, I think Scripture imagines what it means to to live to God's glory, to the praise of His glory, in two ways. First, there's this sense that He's pouring out His Spirit onto us now to make us more more free, to make us more redeemed, to, to purify and to sanctify us now in this life. That's one way we experience the power and the glory of God at work in us. And then secondly, as we're being remade and reformed and reshaped, we are becoming increasingly more of God's own possession. More of our lives become yielded to and claimed by him in earnest. And so the Spirit's working, he's transforming, he's translating our lives to the praise of God's glory. Biblical scholar Timothy Gombas focuses on that phrase to live to the praise of God's glory and he says that essentially that means that God is enabling us to become who we are truly meant to be. It's, it's a vision of God returning us to our creation condition to sanctify us with His Spirit, to recover His image of Christ in us. It's the desire For the Father to look upon us and to see Jesus Christ. And so when he looks upon us, he says, we are good. We are very good. We are glorious even in his sight. Because he's chosen us. He's remaking us. He's repossessing us as a a people for himself. And so the, the church, as broken and as flawed and as unfinished as each one of us are, We are a people God is unequivocally committed to reclaiming. And there's this sense in in all of chapter 1 of how God in his triune being is working together. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit is throughout this text. God is working to make us his glorious people. And he's working to do that individually but especially... ...corporately, especially within the body, within the family of God. And so when we come to church on Sunday morning... ...when we are the church sent in mission throughout the week... Right, ...we're meant as a people to be displaying... ...to be offering sort of glimpses and, and foretastes... ...of this glory of God that's being revealed... ...this mystery that's being made known. The church is the place where the Father, the Son and the Spirit are at work... Claiming and calling and adding to the people of God and so this week I would encourage you to to consider to meditate upon the inheritance you have in Christ God's goodness God's heart, God's affection toward you as his people that's where we draw our identity that's where we are remade and that's where we begin to exhibit and to evidence his glory we don't measure up to it God chooses us and then fills us with his love and his glory. So let us finish in prayer. Let us offer ourselves to God as his possession, his inheritance. Lord, we long to be people who live to the praise of your glory. We long... For our each and every day to, to resound with that praise. Lord, we confess, I confess that each day there are parts of my life that, that remain unyielded, un, unoffered to you, where I uh, fail to, to experience that, that filling and that redeeming and that beauty and that glory that you long to bring. Lord, we thank you that it is your promise, it is your intention to add us, to relocate us in Christ. So that we might be your people and you might be our God. Lord, would you fill us with your promise and with your power anew. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, Amen.